0: Aren't you thankful today for the grace of God? Amen. Something a little different as we start the message this morning. I'm going to have a time of prayer for the city of Durham. You've no doubt been watching in the news like I have and you've seen things that are happening in Durham right now. And you know, what do we do when times like this break out? Well, there's lots of things we can do, but listen what we ought to do is we ought to pray. We ought to pray. We're going to pray this morning for the city of Durham as we begin the message. So I'm invite you to stand with me. If you feel so inclined, you're welcome to come and join me here around the front. stage area, the altar. Just uh, grab a seat or kneel around the altar or stand where you are. Make your way up here to the front, either one. But in just a moment, we're going to be praying for the city of Durham. who want to come forward and join me? Just go ahead and do that even now. Some would say the issues facing the city of Durham are primarily crime issues. Some would say the primary issues facing the city of Durham are gang-related issues. Some would say the primary issues facing the city of Durham are political issues. And some would say the primary issues facing the city of Durham are racial issues. Each of those and others may have their place, but I want to say this morning here in the church... The primary issue facing the city of Durham is a sin issue. It's a sin issue. We all wrestle with it. We all struggle with it. Sin reigns all over the world in many different places in many different ways. But ultimately, we have issues outwardly because there is sin inwardly. And as uh, partners and community members in Durham, God has put us here to be a presence for the gospel. And as gospel partners in the city of Durham, what can we do the most? We can pray. So would you pray with me even now? Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you that you are the God of this city, the city of Durham, North Carolina. We thank you, Lord, that in our difficult days now, as in the past, as even in the future, you are still on the throne. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you are in charge of all things. And so we as your children, as believers and followers of Christ, help us to rest secure knowing that our God reigns and that our God makes a way where there seems to be no way. Lord, our Heavenly Father, this morning we want to pray that you would be with those who are uh, dealing with sin issues so blatantly in our city. We want to pray for our police department to enforce the laws, but also to show restraint where possible and to be a presence that will lead to lawfulness and not lawlessness. We want to pray, Lord, today for our city leaders, both in the city council and our mayor and those involved in law enforcement, those who are out front as, uh, as leaders. We want to pray, Lord, that you would direct their steps and lead them as we recognize that you have put political leaders in place so that citizens may be safe and able to live not only in safety but in freedom to worship. Lord, today we want to pray for victims who have been impacted by the various crimes that have taken place here in our city, some wounded, some even killed. And we want to pray, Lord, that whether it's someone in fact impacted directly or even indirectly, Lord, as people are, are somewhat fearful in certain parts of town, we want to pray for those who have been victims. And Lord, today we want to pray for the church. Lord, this church and and every church in the city of Durham, churches everywhere, but Lord, especially here in our city, we want to pray for the church to be a presence for peace, a presence for the gospel, a presence for the power and life-changing ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, and a testimony that for all who will come, there is hope, there is freedom, there is forgiveness, and as Wendy just sang, there is grace and there is mercy. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, for that. Lord, most of all, we want to pray for the hearts of people. Because, Lord, we know that outward sin comes from an inward sinful heart that we all have. But, Lord, we pray for the hearts of those who would commit such outward and egregious acts here in our city. Lord, that you would turn their hearts towards you, even in ways they can't explain, but that it might be a glory to you. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for us as believers For us who are members of Ridgecrest Baptist Church, we ask, Lord, that as Your Word says, You would fill us with Your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that You would give us a boldness to speak the Word of God. And we pray that as we've been reading in the book of Acts, that when those things happen, that multitudes of men and women and boys and girls will come to life-changing faith in jesus christ lord we ask for more than we can accomplish on our own we ask for what only you can do so that when it happens you will get the glory and we will have the testimony and many will come to a life change in jesus in whose name we pray amen amen thank you so much for that you make your way back to your seats if you would and you may be seated you know there's times where we just need to pray so thank you for, for that. You know, uh, sin is a, it's a biblical issue. Sin is a historical issue. Sin is a cultural issue. It just impacts everything, doesn't it? In the Scripture, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that sin entered into the human race. It didn't even take one generation, and sin was there. We see in 1 Corinthians 15 and many other places in the Bible that sin, though it brings the havoc that it wrecks on the lives and hearts of people, sin is overcome by the atonement that we have in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Christ died for our sins directly, for our sins. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. We know that sin is overcome in the life of any person that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In Romans chapter chapter uh, 10, it says, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be, what does it say? Saved. You'll be saved. Saved from sin and saved into the family of God. We know also that sin is a struggle. A continual struggle. Not just for those that commit crimes that make the news, but sin is a continual struggle even for those of us who know Jesus Christ and have been saved and set free. We still wrestle and battle with the sinful nature that lives within us, and that battle will continue until we die and go to heaven. I don't know if that's good news or bad news for you, but understand that the impact of sin is ongoing in lives and in families and in churches and in communities and across our world. So what then are we to do? You may have heard the saying about sin, that sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you want to pay. I've heard that quoted. I've heard it in a song. Uh, I have lived the reality of that. And I've seen the reality of that statement in the lives of many. Well, in Acts chapter 5, which is where we are today as we're working our way through the book of Acts, we're talking about living a life on mission. And if we're going to live the life on mission that God has called us to live, we have to deal with sin. We have to. We have to deal with sin in our own lives. We have to deal with sin in our community. We have to deal with sin in the church. It's not pleasant. It's not pretty. It's not desirable. It's ugly. And uh, I'd rather not even talk about it, wouldn't you? (laughs) But if I'm going to preach through the book of Acts, I've either got to skip chapter 5 and act like it just ain't there, or we've got to learn from the lessons on sin that we see in Acts chapter 5. You may want to take your Bibles and turn there this morning. We're looking at Acts chapter 5 uh, that describes the impact of a personal sin in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, and in the life of the early church, and the ripple effect that that sin has even until our world today. Now, before we get to Acts chapter 5, I want to I call you back just a couple of verses to the end of Acts chapter 4. We were dealing with Acts chapter 4 recently, and as we've been working our way through, what we understand is in the days of the New Testament church, the, the church was experiencing Holy Spirit power. Don't you love those words? Holy Spirit power was it at work in the church through the disciples in the community, and to the effect that it was making such ripples that the Jewish leaders arrested uh, Peter and John, put them in jail, called them out, threatened them, and said, don't you ever talk about Jesus again. And they said, we just can't help it. You remember that? We talked about that. And then they had a big prayer meeting. And they didn't pray that God would take away the opposition. They didn't pray that God would help them keep their mouth shut. They prayed for boldness to go out in the face of opposition and tell people about Jesus, which is what they were doing at the end of Acts chapter 4, we find these words starting at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, I love that phrase, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus in the face of their orders not to talk about Him. They did it, and they did so boldly. And great grace was upon them all. Don't you love seasons of great grace? It was a, a, and we don't know how long this season lasted there in the church, but in spite of the opposition. The Spirit was being poured out, and grace was there in the midst of that fellowship of believers. Verse 34 of Acts chapter 4, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse 36, Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, here's what's happening. The grace of God was there. People were saying, "If you have a need, you let me know." And it, it, the, the context here is not that everybody sold everything and piled all the money up and they divvied it out. That's not the, that's not the picture. What was happening is people of means were 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 taking property, taking the things that they that they owned. And we're making it available to those that didn't have anything, that couldn't eat, that were, that were hungry, that were coming into the church. And the church said, we're going to feed you. And people were being very generous with their stuff. That's what was happening here. And among those being generous, we're introduced here to a man we'll meet more a little bit later. Named, we know him as Barnabas. His name is Joseph. And so, so Barnabas sold a field, it says, and brought the money and gave it to the apostles. Now, now let me give you a summary, just an overview of Acts chapter 5, the very next part of the Scripture, and then we're going to dive in and look at look at this issue of sin. Now, now, this is going on, and there in the church is a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they're watching what's happening. And they have, evidently, at least some property. And, and so, so they decided on their own, uh, they said, Listen, we're going to sell our property, and we're going to give money here, just like other people, like Barnabas, just like what they're doing. And so, so they, they, they made a point to do that. Now, we don't know. We're not told in the Scripture. But perhaps they, they had been watching this. And maybe when Barnabas brought the, the, the money from the field he sold, maybe he got some notoriety out of that. Now, what we know about Barnabas is he was called a son of encouragement. We know that Barnabas was not a prideful man. We know that he was, was somebody who encouraged other people. In fact, in a couple of chapters, when this man named Saul became Paul at his conversion and everybody else didn't want anything to do with Paul because he had been persecuting the church, it was Barnabas that took him under his wing. Barnabas said, I'm going I'm to believe the best, and I'm going to help this man grow in his faith, and I'm going to introduce him to the right people, and I'm going to smooth out the way. Barnabas just had that kind of a heart. He was an encourager. We don't know about Ananias and Sapphira, but what we do know is that they went, and, and of their own accord, they sold a field, or sold some property, and brought the money and laid it at the disciples feet just like they had seen Barnabas and no doubt others do exactly the same thing but there's a but here if you notice the end of of chapter four uh that Barnabas uh, uh sold the field and he brought the money and laid it at the apostle's feet chapter five but a man named Ananias notice chapter five verse one but the story changes here it looks like the same thing is happening Ananias and Sapphira they bring in their money that they sold some property. They brought their money in and they gave it as well. But it was different. Barnabas was an encourager. Barnabas of his own accord, a Levite from from Cyprus. He sold some property, he brought the money, and, and he gave it. Ananias and Sapphira had some ulterior motives. Maybe they wanted the notoriety, I don't know. Maybe they, were, maybe they were jealous of, of, of the recognition of Barnabas and others. We don't know. Maybe they, they, just, they, they just wanted you know, credit for, for what they were doing. We just don't know exactly. But here's what they had agreed to do. They had agreed to sell their property and take all the money and give it to the apostles, except for they agreed among themselves, we're not going to give all the money, we're going to keep some of it back, but we're going to tell them it's all the money. And we don't know how much they sold the property for. We don't know how much they kept back. We don't know how much they gave. That's not the important issue. The issue is not even that they sold the property and gave money. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's not that they held some money back. That's not an issue at all. That's not a sin to have done what they did. The sin, if you'll notice, and we'll get there in just a moment, the sin was in presenting themselves as something that they were not of presenting themselves as doing something they didn't do, as being in the eyes of God a hypocrite, of being in the eyes of God sinful because of the steps they took, not to, not to sell, not to give, not even to hold back, but to present as something that they weren't. Now let's take just a few minutes and let's look at uh, the impact of sin. We're going to call it for what it is, this sin that they committed. Let's look at the impact in the church the impact on the church, and then the impact through the church of this sin. And before we jump in there, let's be reminded, this is not just an historical story that we're going to tell, but this is is an illustration of the very things that individuals and churches have dealt with throughout history. This is an illustration of what the church across the world, even today, deals with and wrestles with and struggles with and that is sin in the church now let me just be clear I'm not talking about Ridgecrest Baptist Church because we know we know in this service especially there are no sinners in this church now there might be two or three at 1045 I got my eye on some but none of us in this service so just understand I'm not talking about us don't stand too close lightning is going to strike You understand. Let's talk about the impact of sin. First of all, let's notice this. Sin is external. There's a a component of sin that is external. It is what we do. It is outward. It is actionable. It is observable. So much of sin is external. Notice verse 1 there, chapter 5. But a man named Ananias. But, in contrast to Barnabas, this man Ananias may look like he's doing something similar, but... It's very different. With his wife, Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now this word, kept back. He kept back some of it. And again, that's not a sin in this scenario, in this story. If you wanted to go and sell a piece of property and give a portion of that to the church and keep the rest of it for yourself, that's not that's not sinful. That's not sinful. That's a blessing to the church and hopefully to you too. So that's not the sin. So notice very carefully. But when it says here he kept back, that means to put aside. The Greek language to put it aside in a dishonest way. He decided that he was going to be dishonest. He decided that he was going to be uh, sneaky and he was going to be underhanded. That's what this phrase, this phrasing of kept back indicates, an underhandedness, a sneakiness, and a sinfulness. Now often we see that sin is expressed outwardly by what we do. It's no different here. And the actions will often expose us, like it did with Ananias, as hypocritical you know the word hypocrite right you know you understand that hypocrite is a theater is theater language for the for those of us who are are, are theatrically involved but not me i'm not theatrically involved i tried that one time i was told the best thing i could do is pass out bulletins at the door as everybody else came in but he that's another story i'm not hurt too bad but i was in the second grade and i've never gotten over it. anyway <laughs> hypocrite is a theatrical term for what we might call an actor an actor is someone who plays a part that is not really that person. And the, the word hypocrite literally means two-faced. It's someone who is who is playing the part that is not them. In, in, the, in the stage of, of the old days when they didn't have cameras and they couldn't zoom in and put it on a big screen, people that were actors would carry a big shield or a mask indicating the part they were playing if it was a good part then it would be the big face of, of, of the good guy if it was a, a sinister part it would be a, a big plate or, or that they would carry around being the bad guy and so the same person could could play several different parts by just going off the, off the stage get the next part carry it out there and read their lines and then go back and set that one down pick up the next one bring that one out so that so you are a hypocrite you're acting a part we all understand. And there's nothing wrong with being an actor on a stage in a play for a production. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But when it's real life and you're in your home or you're at your job or you're in your relationship with your friends or in your church and you're playing a part that's really not you and you're doing so to influence people to see you in a way different than what you are. You want to present yourself. There's nothing wrong with presenting the best part of you that you have. Hopefully we do that. But when it's when it's a hypocritical thing, now we're, we're into the area where we are outwardly sinning because we're being deceptive in acting who we are. That's what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. Now notice, again, they did not have to sell their property at all. They didn't. They could have easily kept it. They did not have to bring all the money to the church. They were free to keep all of it. They didn't have to bring a dime. And they were free to only bring part of it that was their... Uh, their, their decision. But what they did was they sold the property, they kept some back in a deceptive way, then they presented themselves as bringing it all, and they, uh, they lied about it, and they were hypocritical. And from that time, and even before, and even since, hypocrisy has been demonstrated in the lives of professing Christians and in the church, and it has wrecked havoc on the church in many different ways down through history. So sin is external. But don't you notice also sin is personal. There's an internal nature of sin. Before sin ever exhibits itself outwardly, it is born in our hearts inwardly. You know what sin does on a personal level? It pulls you away from God. When we determine in our heart we're going to sin it steps us away from God. It puts a barrier up between us and God. And you know what else it does? It pulls others away from God too. You know who the instigator was here with Ananias and Sapphira? It was Ananias. It said with the he he, he determined to do this with the knowledge of his wife. And, and I'm not, I don't want to jump into their marriage situation, but it says he determined to keep back some of the money for himself. It didn't say anything about her. He's going to keep it back for him. And she knew about it. Well, I don't know. That's a whole other story. But but in this case, understand that sin will pull you away from God and ripple out to pull others away from God as well. And understand that before we ever express sin outwardly, we give birth to it inwardly. Notice Peter talking to Ananias there in verse number 4 of Acts 5. He says, Why is it, Ananias, that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Now, somehow, some way, the Spirit of God is working and the Spirit of God is moving and, and, and the Spirit of God somehow alerted Peter to what was going on and the deceptive nature of Ananias and Sapphira. And so when Ananias came and he said, here's all the money I, I've, I've gotten for selling this property and I'm going to give it to the church, somehow the Spirit spoke to Peter and Peter spoke to Ananias and said, why have you, notice, contrived this deed In your heart. Before He ever did it outwardly, it happened inwardly. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart concerning sin. Listen to what the Bible says about our hearts and about our sin. Jeremiah in the Old Testament, 17, 9, and 10, it says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? That's why it's so dangerous when we hear people in popular culture movie stars and and song lyrics and and feel-good movies on the Hallmark Channel or, or wherever they might be. And one person says to another, you know, I'm really wrestling with what to do. And no doubt somebody says this, well, follow your heart. Doesn't that sound so good? So warm and so fuzzy. Follow your heart. But understand, the Bible says... Our heart, my heart, your heart, their heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. And we can't understand it. Jeremiah 17, verse 10. God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. So we're in a bad spot, aren't we? If we follow our heart, we're following something that is deceitful and wicked that God knows. So we should not follow our heart. We should instead follow God. Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. That's not something Mama came up with. That's straight out of the Bible. <laughs> Be sure your sin will find you out. And here's, you've heard this saying before. You can fool some of the people all the time. And you can fool all of the people some of the time. But you can't do what? Can't fool God anytime. You can't fool God anytime. time. You can't fool God anytime. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Pam and I live kind of up north a little bit off Rockspur Road. And we turn right there at the Quail Roos Farm on Moores Mill Road to get up to our house in Rougemont. And as we do that, there's these big farming fields that are out there. And, and in the spring, when they're planting the seeds, we can tell they've planted something, but we don't know what it is. You might know exactly what it is based on the time. I don't know. But when it starts coming up, oh, you know what that is? That's a field of corn. You know what that is? That's a field of soybeans. You know what that is over there? I have no clue, but no doubt it's going to be good when it comes up. (laughs) When you sow something, you reap that. When you sow sin, when you sow deceitfulness, when you sow uh, sinning against God, you're going to reap that. And it says this, God is not mocked. When we determine to act deceitfully towards God, when we determine to act deceitfully towards the church, God will not stand for it, whether it's now or later, there will be a price to pay. James chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's about the wickedness of our hearts. See, our own desire tempts us And pulls us away from what is right. We're we're, we're by ourselves and at work or at school or somewhere at somebody else's house or in a store. And and that thought comes to our mind. I like that. I could probably take it and nobody would ever know. Do we act on that? Hopefully not. But we're tempted and lured away by whatever that thing might be. And whatever opportunity might come. Well, you know, I have this opportunity. Somebody says, what a great job I've done. And really my co-worker did most of the work, but they're putting the the attention on me. I don't want to, there's no reason to, to dispute the story. I'll just take all the credit for it. We're lured away and tempted by our own desire for stuff, for glory, for recognition, for the spotlight, for pleasure, for money, fill in the blank. We're all tempted and lured by those things. No doubt Ananias and Sapphira were exactly the same. James goes on to say this, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And then he says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived by the desires of our hearts because our hearts are desperately wicked. I read an article this week, Seven reasons Christians fall into sin. Seven reasons. Uh, you know, we don't, Most of us don't need but one or two, but here's seven reasons Christians fall into sin. Number one, success can lead you to let your guard down. I've been doing so good in my Christian life, I don't need to read my Bible and pray. I've got it going on. Secondly, the longer you're a Christian, the more opportunities there are to fall. That's very true. Thirdly, you've learned to hide your sin by putting up a good front. And I can put up a good front and hide a little bit of sin. I can put up a good front maybe hide a little more sin. And the article goes on to say, busyness in the church, a good reputation, and an outgoing personality can cover an awful lot of sin. Why Christians fall into sin, number four. You never developed spiritual disciplines. Many Christians, when asked, indicate that Bible study and prayer have always been struggles. They're not consistent in staying in the Word, not consistent in biblical praying. And that leads to a breakdown, to a weakness, to temptation. Number five, spiritual fatigue. I'm just so tired. It's just so hard to live for Jesus in the world I'm in. And eventually we get worn down. Number six, strained relationships. Relationships with God, relationships with our family, relationships even in our church can lead us to a point where we're susceptible to giving in to temptation and then Seventhly, and I, don't, I know nothing about this, a midlife crisis. People who have not reached their dreams, they struggle because their weaknesses, they've, they've not gotten to where they wanted to be. And they feel like they might not meet their goals. And so there's a temptation to compromise in that regard. Listen, sin is personal. Sin, thirdly, is also spiritual. We need to understand that there's a spiritual component to sin. It's not just me and the desires within my heart. It's not just me and the temptations that you or somebody else might bring into my life. There's a spiritual component that we see here. In fact, there's always a spiritual component. There's always a spiritual battle. There's always a spiritual struggle. There are always spiritual forces of good and evil that we can't see that are at work all around us. You know that. We don't often think about it. We often miss that. But there are spiritual forces. Notice verse number 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now he's brought the devil in it. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Then he says in verse 4, you've not lied to men, you lied to God. When you came in here and said, here's all the money from the sale of this field. Notice, he wasn't lying to the apostles. You can lie to me till you're blue in the face and you can fool me all day long. I'm going to take you at your word. But listen, God knows. God knows the difference. God knows when I sin, when I lie, he knows when you sin and when you lie. And, and when we sin, notice there is an evil component called Satan and there is a godly component that we violate not against people but against God. Satan here is the instigator. Notice what what notice specifically what Peter said to Ananias. Satan, why has Satan filled your heart? You know what the Bible says in Ephesians 5.18? It says, don't be filled with wine, which is debauchery, but be being filled or be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, So here we see Satan taking the role of what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. It is God's plan and purpose that you and I be filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit leads us forward. But then we allow Satan to come in And He fills us. There's not room for both fillings in our lives at the same time. You know that, right? There's not room in your heart for Satan to fill your heart and for God to fill your heart through the Holy Spirit. And here He says, you've let Satan come in. And you've let Satan fill your heart. And Satan has led you to to lie to the Holy Spirit. In John 8.44, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. And in Hebrews 6.18, we're told God cannot lie. So when lies come out of our mouth, it is not God who will never call us to lie. Well, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 says this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He is a scheming rascal. Can we say that about him today? He is a scheming rascal who is out for our demise. Verse 12 of Ephesians 6, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is an unseen battle happening all around us that we have no clue that it's happening most of the time, but we are right in the middle of it. And you've seen that little cartoon, haven't you, where, where it's, sometimes it's Bugs Bunny, sometimes it's a character in a movie, and they've got to make this decision, and they're going, what, what's right and what's wrong? And on this side, there's a little devil that's sitting there, and he's whispering in your ear, oh, it's okay, you can do it, nobody will ever find out. And on this side, there's a little angel sitting there, and, and, and saying, you know, you need to follow after God and do what's right. And, and, and they're just back and forth and back and forth, and there we are, right in the middle. What are we going to do? And that's a a very accurate illustration of what you and I deal with on a regular basis. The forces of good and evil are coming at us and calling us to pursue them. It is the Holy Spirit of God calling us to be filled with the Spirit and tell the truth and present ourselves as godly. And it is the forces of evil that are whispering in our ear and calling us to do that which is opposed to God. And here's what we understand in 1 Peter 5 verses 8 and 9. It says this be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Someone. You've seen those those, those National Geographic shows of out in the safari in Africa, and the lions, you know, they circle around and they're hungry. And, and here's what I've learned from watching National Geographic, the safari with the lions. The lions pick on those that are the youngest and most vulnerable or the oldest and can't keep up with the herd. And a hungry lion, you know what they're going to get? They're going to get somebody. They're going to get somebody. And if you as a gazelle, let's just say gazelle. Don't y'all want to be a gazelle? I'd love to be a gazelle. Just, you know, anyway. (laughs) But in the herd of gazelles, if you're healthy and you're observant and you're eating and you're watchful. You're not going to get attacked by the lion because the lion is going to get somebody else who's either too young and are vulnerable or they're too old and slow. And v- the lion doesn't care. Who's, who's the most vulnerable? That's who they're going after. In the same way, the devil is looking for someone. Someone to devour. Verse 9 of 1 Peter 5 says this, Resist him. Resist him. Be healthy. Be strong. First John 4, 4 says, he who is in you. He who is in you if you're a believer. He who is in you if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit of God who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That's our victory. There's a spiritual battle. Notice, notice fourthly, and I've got to hit high gear here, but notice fourthly, sin is judgmental. There's a judgment that comes from sin. When we sin, there's a price to pay In the eyes of a holy God who cannot allow sin to exist and flourish and go unpunished. In the ESV study Bible, in the notes at the bottom of the page, it mentions this. That God's removal of the distrust and the disunity of dishonesty came about with Ananias and Sapphira being judged. The Holy Spirit is strongly present in the church and is blessing the church with unity and out of that comes judgment on the disruption. This whole episode with Ananias and Sapphira is called a disruption. And we're told here that God brings judgment. In Hebrews 9.27 it says, It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 10, 30 and 31 says, The Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here we see the judgment of God coming on a blatant sin of hypocrisy given there to the church at a time when they were experiencing great power and great grace. Oftentimes that's when Satan attacks it at his hardest, is when God's church is enjoying His power, His presence, and his grace. Notice, fifthly and quickly, sin is congregational. Congregational. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. Verse four, uh, verse six. The young men came and wrapped him up. I skipped the part where it says when 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 Peter confronted Ananias. Ananias just dropped down dead on the spot. I don't know that Peter knew that was going to happen. He just simply was, was impressed by the Holy Spirit and he spoke to Ananias, and Ananias dropped down dead. The same thing happened a little bit later with Sapphira, and, and, and the congregation was impacted in that they saw it. They came in and had to carry the bodies out, and it says that the great fear came upon everybody. When stuff like that happens, people get afraid. They're afraid of God. They're afraid of sin. They they kind of stand back at arm's length. And it's not a bad thing to be afraid of God. Let me tell you right now. It's not a bad thing to be afraid of the judgment of God. Because God judges sin. But it is a comforting thing to know that my sin has been atoned for in Christ. And I have forgiveness. So sin is congregational. It ripples out. And impacts everybody. Number six, sin is overcomable. I like that. I made that word up, overcomable. Sin is overcomable. But listen, it must be addressed. And sin must be addressed with Scripture and the Holy Spirit and the church. And the times over 35 years in ministry that I have hated, hated, hated my job are those times when I've had to sit down with someone or someones and confront sin. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. I try to get out of it. God, you take care of it. But there are those moments I've had to sit down with people and confront and to call to repentance. Thankfully, some have done just that. And when that happened in in this story, verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of men and women were being saved. And let me lastly say this, that sin is forgivable. That's the message of the church. We're all sinners, But sin is forgivable. 1 John 1, 1, 8 and 9 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you thankful for that? So thankful. There's a lyrics to, to a song I want to share with you. Once I foolishly turned God away... Not knowing the heartache a sinner must face. But God in His goodness has let me return to share with His children this lesson I've learned. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Slowly and wholly taking control. Sin will leave you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. The impact of sin... Is overcome by the forgiveness of God. The impact of sin is overcome by the forgiveness of God. And so I wonder this morning, as Bill's going to come up and lead us in our last song here in just a moment, we'll work towards concluding our service. But as we do that, I just wonder, I just wonder what sin you're dealing with in your life right now. I don't know what it is. And listen, I don't need to know. I don't need, I don't want to know. But the point is, God knows. What sin are you dealing with in your life that's impacting you personally, that's impacting you externally, that's impacting other people that may be dragged away from God because of sin in your life? What, 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 what sin is going on that may be rippling out across even this church? You know, I said that earlier about nobody in here not ha- having no sin. I, I wasn't really... I, I, I was, I'm just going to tell you, I wasn't telling the truth. We all deal with sin. We all deal with... Right now, you're dealing with sin, I'm dealing with sin, internally, externally, whatever it might be. I wonder this morning, what sin is impacting your life and what are you going to do about it? Is it going to take the judgment of God to deal with your sin? Or, or, could it be the gospel can step in? And if we'll confess our sin, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse, to bring mercy and to bring grace because that's who He is. The choice is ours. What are we going to do? We're going to stand and sing this last song. I want to encourage you to do business with God. Right where you are up here at this altar, I'll be hanging around out here at the front, but but do business with God now between you and Him. And it may be that even during this song or after this service is over, it may necessitate a phone call, an email, a visit, a face-to-face, a confession, whatever it might be, making things right between you and God, you and others, you and a church, whatever it might be. Do business with God. Sin is nasty, but grace is so clean and pure. And there's nothing like forgiveness. Let's stand together. I want to pray. We're going to sing. You respond. God, thank you. Thank you that you point out to us the impact of sin because you love us and you don't want us to go down that path. We pray even now as we deal with the impact of sin in and through our own lives and church and families and community. Lord, bring about your grace and your forgiveness as we take and ask you to speak to our hearts for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.